Welcome to the Not All Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and this is episode number 440. Today's show is brought to you by Skylight, makers of the Skylight Frame. As part of our Art of Living author interview series, we are joined today by physician and award-winning author Louise Aronson. We will be speaking with Dr. Aronson about her revolutionary perspective on growing old in her new book, Elderhood, Redefining Aging, Transforming Medicine, Reimagining Life. Dr. Aronson will share stories from her personal and professional life, and she draws from history, science, literature, and popular culture to offer a powerful roadmap for how we approach old age. Full of joy, wonder, frustration, and outrage, Dr. Aronson's moving book, Elderhood, offers hope about aging, hope about medicine, and hope about humanity itself, knowing that we may be elders for 40 years or longer, but old age needn't be a disease to be denigrated and neglected. For more than 5,000 years, old has been defined as beginning between the ages of 60 and 70. That means most people alive today will spend more years in elderhood than in childhood, and many will be elders for 40 years or longer. Yet at the very moment that humans are living longer than ever before, we've made old age into a disease, a condition to be dreaded, denigrated, neglected, and denied. Like many doctors, I went into medicine because I wanted to help people. And like many medical students, I quickly discovered that medical education is more about chemical structures and biology, diseases and organs, than about humanity and healing. Midway through my first year, I knew every dean and had a collection of catalogs to other graduate programs, public health and medical anthropology, English, policy, and psychology. This wasn't entirely surprising. As a history major who'd chosen my undergraduate college for its lack of math or science requirements, I was an unlikely medical student. But I believed medicine would allow me to make a difference in people's lives in ways those other fields might not. Still, for two years, I kept the glossy booklets hidden in my dorm room, and late at night I pored over their disparate course offerings with the zeal of a kid set free in a candy shop. My secret catalogs provided glimpses of a worldview absent from my medical textbooks and the lectures I attended. Here were courses and professions that acknowledged the particularity, complexity, and ambiguity of human lives without reducing them to disembodied cells, parts, and processes. That, of course, is our guest today, Dr. Louise Aronson, reading from her new book, Elderhood. Dr. Aronson urges us to re-examine the meaning of aging and to reframe our later decades to better prepare for and thrive in our final years. In speaking with us today, Dr. Aronson recounts vividly her conversations with doctors and laypeople, the aged and aging, their children and their children, anyone who will be old one day, which in theory is all of us. So please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show via internet phone, Dr. Louise Aronson. Dr. Louise Aronson, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's good to talk to you, too, about this, this important subject. Your, your excellent book, Elderhood, Redefining Aging, Transforming Medicine, Reimagining Life, is, uh, is really, gr- really great. And, and, and in the book, you talk about the perceptions of the elderly, those of us who are kind of in that 60, north of that 60-year age. And so I wonder, right. <laughs> I wonder, as a physician... How do perceptions of us, of the elderly, uh, me, I'm, I'm referring to, impact, <laughs> you know, medical care? And, and, and how does medicine, in turn, need to, to change to better serve uh, elders? 
well, I think medicine basically reflects what's going on in society. You know, it, it likes to pretend that it's all about evidence and science, but it's full of human beings, um, you know, and culture has its impact on us all, um, sometimes very much for better and sometimes not, you know, for, for not so good. Bleh. Anyway, um, sometimes for better and sometimes for worse. Um, and so I use medicine in the Book to really look at how society deals with aging and also look at how society deals with aging to see what we do in medicine. And I think what happens in medicine is what happens in life, which is that people kind of devalue old age. We also, um, you, you quoted that, you know, old age generally through time has been considered to begin between the ages of 60 and 70. But in America in the last half century or so, we've come to use the word old for just the few years of debility prior to death. And that's not accurate, or we kind of use it in both ways. And medicine does something similar. Um, we don't think about all the substages of elderhood. And the reason I went with elderhood for the book is that I think it, it, sort of is a is a way of thinking about mm, the reason I went for elderhood for the book is that it like childhood and adulthood can encompass huge varieties and decades of experience so just as a kid can be a neonate through a teen an older person can be um, you know working running marathons you know starting a company you know or they can be in the frailer frailer stages of old age and we need to understand that being old includes all that. It's no less varied than the other stages. Medicine sometimes overtreats, so I'm finally coming to answer your question, but um, so perceptions of the elderly reflect society in that sometimes we think, well, everybody's old and frail, so we're not going to treat them. But if you're a fit 85-year-old, a mammogram may benefit you because you may live another 10 years, in which case it's beneficial. Um, on the other hand, sometimes we would put a very debilitated 85-year-old through a surgery, which is proven to help people when they're 55, but actually causes confusion and infections and really ruins the life of that 85-year-old. So what we need to do in medicine is what we need to do in life is look at the person and look at how they're functioning and where they are in their arc of, of elderhood. I think if we, you know, in pediatrics, they have a neonatologist, they have adolescent medicine specialists, they have, you know, a pediatric heart specialists. And for adults, we have the same thing. We have people who really focus on young adults and people who focus on middle age and menopause and, and a variety of conditions that happen them. And we just haven't done the same for old age. I thought that was nice, too. I, I, uh, I like that. I, I really like this term that you use, the varieties of of the age and, and of aging. And I'll tell you mm -hmm. a kind of a personal real life story. My mom uh, is 90. Um, mm -hmm. She's living a very full life in Northern California. She still plays the accordion, lifts up a 15 pound instrument and uses mm -hmm. all the fingering to, to get, uh, to get music from that machine. And uh, she's just finished a book she's written of her poetry. She loves being outside. I guess I should be so lucky as I, as I age. And definitely, yes, definitely. <laughs> And so you write about genetics and biology and gender, and I wonder if if that's what this is all about, or if I have maybe some control as I age, as I get towards ninety. 
Uh, well, I love that question. Absolutely, there are things we can control. Genetics are part of the puzzle, but they are less than half the puzzle. People argue, um, you know, and, and I'm not a basic scientist like or a geneticist, but people argue that genetics are anywhere from 10% to the highest I've seen is not even at 40% of how we age. So a whole lot of it um, has to do with more nurture instead of nature, mm-hmm. to, to put it one way. On the other hand, we can't always control all of nurture. The more fortunate among us um, get some of the early advantages, you know, and in childhood, a better education tends to live, lead to more income, tends to lead to a longer life. Uh, the things we can all control, though, uh, and I noticed that your mother's doing some of them, so that the accordion weighs 15 pounds is huge. So she's not only having to coordinate like her brain and her fingers and music and, and lift things, but so the lifting keeps her strong. And we women start out with less, you know, usually less strong physically. Um, and sometimes when people are 90, particularly females, uh, they really have trouble like opening jars and things. And sometimes that's arthritis and sometimes it's strength. So having activities, being physically active, socially active, and mentally active are absolutely huge to lead to uh, healthy aging. You know, it, it seems like these things are kind of different. Like, yes, physical exercise is great for your body. It turns out it's also good for your brain in delaying dementia and cognitive impairment. Uh, mental exercise is good for your brain, obviously, but it also helps you connect with others, which leads to better physical health. And if you do develop a dementia, that also erodes your physical health. So all these things are connected. The more we can be physically and intellectually active and with other people, the better we age. Um, Another big component is diet. Um, I am a food lover, so if people are moaning and groaning about hearing all, all you know, what we're supposed to eat and not eat, um, I hear you. Uh, <laughs> having reached middle age, I'm now having to, to clean up some of my um, evil ways. Uh, you know, we know what to eat. It's basically the Mediterranean diet or the Japanese diet or, you know, something that has lots of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, um, nuts, probably healthy oils. So that can come from nuts and avocados and olives and things like that. And not very much, if any, packaged food, uh, red meats, things like that. Uh, For many of us, we can eat all the right things, but we eat some of the wrong things. And a lot of people also think, well, I'm already 65 or I'm already 80. What difference does it make? It turns out the unhealthy foods are pro-inflammatory. So they literally might be increasing your pain, decreasing the quality of your sleep. Um, And those things we know one leads to the next. You have more pain, you don't sleep as well. You haven't slept as well. You don't feel as good. You might eat the wrong things, which causes more pain and on and on it goes. So at all ages, a healthy diet and getting more active, even if you feel sleepy, even if it hurts a bit at first, tend to really improve your long, not just the length, of time you live, but the quality of those years. When we come back, Dr. Louise Aronson will share why this is such a transformative time for aging. It's very enlightening. Stay with us. Hi there, it's Paul. I talk a lot about my mom. My mom is nearly 90, still walks her dog, plays the accordion beautifully, and lives 2,400 miles away from me and my family. Despite the distance, my mom and I are close, but as well as I know her, 
I know that at 90, there aren't a whole bunch of great gifts to give her for Mother's Day. It's an important day as a son or daughter, but difficult to find the right gift, which is why I love the skylight frame. And that was just the perfect gift for my mom. I know because I was so excited to give it to her, I gave it to her already <laughs> before sending it to, to my mom. I set it up, preloaded it with photos. It is super easy. The idea, of course, is that the skylight frame is a touch screen photo frame you can email photos to, and they appear in seconds so my mom can see all of the favorite moments that my family shares with her. My mom can tap the heart button right on the frame, and it lets me know that she loves that specific photo. This makes the frame interactive, and it is so fun to use. You know, I stay in regular contact with my mom, but the phone lacks that necessary visual, and video chat just doesn't cut it. So I can send photos to a custom email address, and each image is uploaded instantly for my mom to see. It is a really easy way for my mom to see what we're up to all the way across country and for us to stay connected and connected with my sons and my wife Gretchen. It's a great way to feel close to those you love even when you're separated. And you can share the custom email address and multiple people can send photos to the frame. So it's a great way to keep large groups of friends and families in touch. Look, there seems to be no end to our social distancing at the moment. This is such an isolating time as we are just trying to keep all of us, including my mom, safe and healthy. But the skylight frame gives my mom a little glimpse of us every day. And then when we talk on the phone, she can talk to the boys about the pictures we sent. This skylight frame is 100% satisfaction guaranteed. If you don't love your skylight frame, they'll offer you a full refund. And now, as a special holiday offer, you can get $10 off your purchase of a skylight frame when you go to skylightframe.com slash old, O-L-D, and enter the code O-L-D, old. That's right. To get $10 off your purchase of a skylight frame, just go to skylightframe.com slash old, and enter old. All this will be in the show notes. Thanks, everybody. We're back with Dr. Louise Aronson, author of the book, Elderhood, Redefining Aging, Transforming Medicine, Reimagining Life. Dr. Aronson, in your book, you call this a transformative period. How so? Mm, well, it's kind of exciting. People, you know, people use terms like silver tsunami, like it's all bad. Like there's really no upside to the to a tsunami. Uh, and that's not what our aging population is. It used, you know, there have always been old people, but there have never been as many as there are now. And that offers an opportunity because when there are fewer, and especially there were many fewer of a class of people, you don't really like build hospitals and have specialists for them. But more importantly, you don't have the right kind of transportation. You don't have homes where people can age in place. You don't have jobs um, that people can do in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. And more and more of us are finding like, hey, you know, when, when retirement age was set at 65, most people, you know, the average age of death was 67. If you're going to live another 20, 30, 40 years, you could you know, you're certainly that the degree of boredom and inactivity is bad for your health and well-being. So people are working longer. And we are in this period where we get to figure out what that looks like. Um, it's also kind of wonderful when people talk about silver tsunami, they're, they're acting like the olden days were better. When the old days you had extra kids because kids routinely died and young adults died. And if you got to be old, chances were 
a lot of your descendants were dead. Like to me, that doesn't feel like good old days. So we are at this moment where there are so many old people and older people are realizing they're flexing their muscles and they're realizing, hey, I need this. And as a human being, I have a right to things that are suited to my body and life stage, no less and no more so, but certainly no less so than a child or an adult. Um, so we get to figure out what that is. And I actually find the people who are being most creative and innovative and starting, um, you know, podcasts and companies and things like that are the people living through it themselves. Um, so it's really designing a world where there are about equal people in childhood, adulthood, and elderhood. And that has impact across every sector, whether you're designing clothes or you're designing, you know, streetcars. Um, so it's transformative for our species and the opportunities for all of us are huge. We should see that with excitement, um, not with dread. As I say, I, I really enjoyed the book because it's it's very candid, it's very balanced, and and it's true. Aging is difficult, but the myth that aging is bleak isn't entirely true either. And I'll tell you, I'm 62. I've never felt more happy or more fulfilled, and I I tend to own my age. And I think I know why that's true for me. But why why is that true in a, in a broader sense that we need to own our age? Oh yes. Well, actually, when they do studies, they find that you are at this age where happiness and life satisfaction go way up and anxiety goes down. So elders, on average, and yes, if you're really sick or you're taking care of a really sick spouse, things are not so happy. But they're horrible things that happen throughout life, right? So um, we, we tend to tell the bad stories and not the good stories, mm -hmm. but they've done studies across all countries except for the poorest of the poor. And at about age 60, people's happiness goes up and anxiety goes down. And this probably has to do with a few things. Um, there's less pressure in terms of um, providing for a family maybe or balancing family and career you're more comfortable with yourself, so it's easier to make decisions. Uh, we talk a lot about loss in old age, and that's true. You know, there are fewer years ahead than behind. Um, there are certain things you're not going to do anymore. And, and that seems sort of limiting, but that's also really a glass half uh, empty sort of mm -hmm. perspective because we can never do all the things in our lives that we might do. And most of the time, we're not doing most of the things that we could do. <laughs> so in some ways, having a smaller menu makes it easier for you to pick the things that matter to you. Um, and you're more confident in who you are. And actually, the last thing that distinguishes old age probably matters too, which is that after childhood comes adulthood, and after adulthood comes elderhood, and after elderhood comes death. Mm -hmm. And people skew that entirely negatively. But um, I started out as a fiction writer. And one of the things we do to make a good story in fiction is put a clock on things. Because if you know the clock is ticking, then there's more drama. There's more urgency on the page. And I think life takes on that aspect also. Like, these years matter. What's going to make me happy? What's going to make the world a better place? How am I going to use my time? And so people make better decisions and are happier with the decisions they make. And in that way, you're you're almost touching on this idea of of old age isn't a singular state, I, I believe. And so what do you mean by that, that old age isn't a singular state? Um, well, it's not singular in the abstract. Like we say, oh, that's an old person. Well, mm -hmm. you know, it's, that's as bad as helpful as saying that's a young person, right? So is the old person 
um, you know, a person who's been homeless and mentally ill and is 63, you know, but is having trouble walking and, you know, taking care of himself or is the old person, you know, your mother at age 90 playing her accordion and finishing a book? There is as much variety in, in old age as in any other life stage. And some people actually have argued that there is more variety mm-hmm. um, because absent really bad disease, you know, two-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 32-year-olds are all fairly similar in their functions and activities. Um, whereas that is tends to be less and less true as we move through elderhood. Um, it's also not singular because there are substages and subphases. Um, and because we're individuals, just because you become old doesn't mean you lose your individuality. There, there's no phase in which it's singular. You know, we are all singular, but, but our, a phase of life is not singular. Uh, one of the problems is, and, and this is sort of why I started with language for the book, calling it elderhood, um, is that we don't quite have an equivalent terminology um, for the stages of old age. And actually, we don't have a great terminology for the stages of adulthood either, right? We sort of say young adult, adult, and middle age. I mean, that's better than, than nothing. But we And we know that's the sequence. For kids, we've got a huge amount of language. Um, but then for elders, we have a bunch of terms, and people use them differently. So in the book, I sort of went with um, a particular order uh, – that that made sense to me and and sort sort of was followed. So senior, you know, because I I put that first after middle age because we talk about senior citizen discounts and you know senior in college is a good thing and often people in the senior phase are uh, pretty high up in their company or something like that. Um, then old, then elderly because that suggests really moving moving along through and, and maybe moving more slowly. And then aged, because I felt we needed a term that wasn't disparaging for the very old. Uh, centenarians are among the fastest group, you know, growing uh, segments of our population. And somehow that just seems it should, that people have earned a word. Uh, <laughs> and yet, Unlike kids, where we know a neonate has just been born and a toddler is only a few years, you know, you're only a toddler for a few years and you're a tween for a few years. In old age, we don't necessarily go through all those stages. And sometimes people appear to move not just forward, but backward. Um, So if you have somebody who's in their 70s, let's say, and gets a really bad cancer and goes through really hard chemo, during the chemo, and I've seen this many times, that person um, can begin to seem really frail and and what you might say, quote unquote, older than they looked previously. But if they make it through that ordeal and come out the other end, then after a year or two, they may seem to be, quote unquote, younger again, and their functional status might move back from elderly to old or senior. Um, so Old age is kind of unique in that regard, but we would do better if we had a language and a sense of of its its really uniqueness, and, and that we can move forward and back, and that there are substages, uh, and acknowledge that in in everything, in how we deal with each other. I mean, I'm um, I'm catching up on you. I'm 56 now, and I took a, a quick flight to San Diego for one night in uh, last month. Uh, And I had a little tiny suitcase, and there was this big, tall, young guy barreling down behind me. So I moved the suitcase into my 
my row. Uh, I wanted to pull out my computer to work on the flight. Um, and a, a very nice young woman behind the man who was barreling down on me um, said, oh, ma'am, can I help you put that up? <laughs> you know, like I'm a pretty fit 56-year-old, you know, but, <laughs> but because I wrote a book called Elderhood, I grew my hair yeah. gray. And I think she could only see the gray hair and she literally just didn't even look at me or how I'd been walking and, <laughs> and everything else. And I think that's looking at old age as singular and not looking at each person to see how he or she moves and is in the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, thank thank you for that. I I just have one final question for you, and and it's a, it's maybe a good one to kind of to wrap up because this is a subject that I think is is a really important one. I think elderhood is is a very important one as well. But I think end of life planning is is vital and crucial in families. And so mm-hmm. you, you write about this, and why why is it so hard to talk about this end-of-life planning subject, death and dying in well, families? You know, there have been taboos across every culture and throughout time. So mm-hmm. I feel like it's something that's that's sort of baked into many of us as humans, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, there are mm-hmm. cultures in which talking about something can make it so, so there's superstition. Uh, sometimes, um, people don't want to bring it up because they don't want to upset. And this can happen bi-directionally and across generations. So the child may not want to upset the older person, um, you know, the adult child, you know, but, you know, we should really all know once we're adults and probably by our teens that we're all going to die at some point, but, but, you know, and as we get older, our chances go up, uh, pretty significantly. So, so we kind of, you know, tiptoe around that. On the other hand, I've had lots of people as I've been sort of touring the country speaking, saying they want to discuss planning and their kids say, no, 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 you're fine. Or their kids can't deal with it. Um, so I think it behooves all of us to do this. And and one of the things I recommend is a fun game called Go Wish. It's these cards that talk about things that have to do with end of life care and also just quality of life, things that you value as a human being. Um, and you can give each person a certain number of cards. Usually it's good to have a few decks, but do it as a family and everybody picks like five cards of things that really matter most to them and five they can live without. And then you kind of share with each other and it makes it a little easier to discuss and, and adds almost, uh, a, a slightly impersonal element to enter you into the personal conversation. But I guess the most important thing I have to say about this is that you are most likely, we all have to die. It's it's unfortunate, people don't like it, but so far human mortality holding steady at 100% and for the foreseeable future. So that being the case, the best way to get the death you want is to talk about it with other people, um, to figure out what you want and to make sure other people know. And the best way to get the death that you fear is to never discuss what you want with anyone. Um, And this can be made fun or funny in that kind of way that sometimes when things are really hard, we all end up laughing. Uh, It's also an opportunity for families to get closer. And I've I've done this with couples who've been married for, you know, like 50 or 60 years. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there's something that surprises them about Mm -hmm. each other. Um, And that can actually uh, reawaken a marriage. You know, it's it's sort of the differences in learning about somebody that can make... uh, a new romance fun. And, you know, this is an opportunity to have a new experience with your spouse or parents or friends. Uh, and, and we should 
embrace that in all its different forms, including end-of-life planning, because uh, that way we get better deaths. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Go wish cards. I like that. Yeah. It's a great suggestion. Yeah, developed by a, a hospice team, I think, or a physician who worked in hospice. I actually have known her name but can't remember it, but oh. they are wonderful. I'll find those and put links up to where we can find out more about the Go Wish cards. And I'll put links up to you, Dr. Louise Aronson, where we can find out more information about you. And in particular, the book, the excellent book, Elderhood, Redefining Aging, Transforming Medicine, Reimagining Life. Thank you so much for your time today. You've been so generous, and we really appreciate all of the answers and uh, just the helpful guidance about this subject. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure being on, and thank you for hosting a podcast that talks about all these things, because I think that is one of the ways in which elderhood is being made better. I really do. My thanks to Dr. Louise Aronson joining us today to talk about elderhood, the title of her new book, wherein she breaks down our preconceived ideas about aging and old age, diving deep into the counterproductive ways our medical system and societal attitudes shape life from age 60 forward. And my thanks as well to today's sponsor, Skylight, maker of the Skylight Frame. Remember, you can go to skylightframe.com old for $10 off. My thanks as well to our wonderful Not Old Better Show audience. Remember, stay safe, everyone. Practice smart social distancing and talk about better, the Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody.